And the other thing, chaos. There's zero chaos. We are running. This is a fine-tuned machine. <laughs> if it was any more fine-tuned, I don't think we'd take it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I don't think we can take it as I is. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, it's fine-tuned. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Boy. And I'm how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is still the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI News Radio. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM. Is anybody still in Washington, D.C. at this point? And in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and really all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for yet another action-packed, thrilling adventure that we call the Bradcast. As once once again, Trump o'clock came early today, did it not, Desi Doyen? <laughs> oh my goodness, yes, the roller coaster that never ends. It never ends. Donald Trump's controversial chief political strategist, Steve Bannon, is out. You may have heard by now. The uh, CEO of the right-wing fake news outlet called Breitbart, which Bannon once hailed as the media home for the so-called alt-right, which is a euphemism for uh, white nationalists. Uh, this is the fourth departure for a senior White House official within as many weeks. Over the past month, Donald Trump's fine-tuned machine has lost uh, his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, his communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, his press secretary, Reince Priebus, and, no, I'm sorry, uh, Sean Spicer, and his chief of staff, Reince Priebus. Uh, or as uh, frequent Brad blog, uh, Bradcast guest Eric Bollert summarized on Twitter today, quote, so much winning. <laughs> yeah. Another uh, frequent uh, Bradcast guest, Ian Milheiser, said congrats to Steve Bannon on being the only Trump advisor to emerge with his reputation exactly as tarnished as it was before he went in. Well, so there's that. There's kind of that. Uh, someone else said that he was resigning so that he could spend more time sucking his own. Oh, we can't. Uh, yeah, we don't are say that. on FCC. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, the. Uh, <laughs> According to White House sources uh, via New York Times, CNN and others, this decision 
for Bannon to leave was made about two weeks ago, uh, around the same time that Chief of Staff Reince Priebus was also shown the door. But that uh, but the the announcement was delayed, they claim, by Charlottesville. True. I don't know. But American Prospects, uh, that article uh, had to be the final straw uh, if there was any waffling about dumping Bannon when uh, Steve Bannon called up the American Prospect to speak with its uh, uh, journalist Robert Kuttner, who had written an article about China and about trade wars with China, which I hope we get to speak about more in the very near future on this show, because it is an interesting topic. Um, that said, uh, I think that uh, I think that that article in the American Prospect describing what Bannon had said when he called uh, Kuttner had to be the the last straw. We talked a little bit about it, I think, uh, on our previous show. Bannon had undercut. Trump's stance on North Korea. I think that had to really sting. Uh, Kuttner wrote uh, that uh, contrary to Trump's threat of fire and fury, Bannon said, quote, there is no military solution to North Korea's uh, nuclear threats. He said, forget it until somebody solves the part of the equation that shows me that 10 million people in Seoul don't die in the first 30 minutes from conventional weapons. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no military solution here. They got us. So he directly, directly undercut what Donald Trump had been going on about for the past week or oh, so. Oh, yeah. He showed him to be a paper tiger, showed that he was bluffing, basically. Yep. He also uh, talked about changing personnel at the White House in a way that made him sound like he was the president. And this is something that had been reportedly a problem for Donald Trump. Uh, going back months ago when people were giving uh, Steve Bannon the credit for Trump's presidency. Bannon said during this call, he said, I'm changing out people at East Asian Defense at the Defense Department. I'm getting hawks in, he said. I'm getting Susan Thornton, the acting head of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, out of state, out of the State Department. He made it sound like he was doing the hiring and firing. That could not have set well with the president. And um, in case all of this uh, all of this wasn't bad enough, he also dismissed the far right as irrelevant and uh, described uh, ethno nationalism. He said it's losers. It's a fringe element. I think the media plays it up too much and we got to help crush it, you know, help crush it more. These guys are a collection of clowns. He seemed to be talking about the far right, the far right base of Donald Trump's own. And now this is, you know, Don, uh, uh, Bannon has said that uh, Breitbart is the home for the alt right. And here he seems to be uh, actually you know, calling them clowns. Uh, the very people that he Dismissing has supposed them. is, uh, yeah, is, is uh, supposed to be supporting over at Breitbart. But they seem to be cool with that. Breitbart is just fine. They're declaring war now that uh, Bannon has been tossed out, even though Bannon exposed himself as a liar who manipulates these uh, clowns on the far right. So uh, anyway, there's that today. Um, <laughs> we'll get back to some politics and uh, palace intrigue here in the bottom dropping out for the Trump administration uh, and how he could maybe finally be removed from office with my guest coming up momentarily. Uh, Desi, you'll also be back with us with the Green News Report yes. in a bit, if yes. time allows. If oh, time allows, it better allow. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, but as ever, you know, we try. We don't always succeed, but we try to stay focused on 
how the nation must eventually climb out from this mess if we are ever able to move beyond this uh, ongoing and seemingly never-ending Trump train wreck. Um, to do that, I, I want to go back to 2006 here today at Brad Blog, October 23, 2006, just days before that year's crucial election in the midst of the uh, George W. Bush years, just after his disastrous response to Hurricane Katrina in the middle of some of the worst years of Bush's Iraq war. So uh, bradblog.com, October 23, 2006, exclusive election security breach. Chicago's online voter registration database discovered vulnerable to hackers. As I reported back then, another stunning security breach has been exposed in our nation's electoral system. The Brad blog has learned as the online voter registration um, as the online voter registration database containing the personal information of some 1.5 million voters in Chicago has been found to be vulnerable to both downloading and hacking. The flawed electronic database, which allowed the retrieval and modification of personal voter information, including Social Security numbers and birth dates of Chicago voters, was discovered by members of the Illinois Ballot Integrity Project, a nonpartisan group of election integrity advocates. Again, this was back in 2006. Members of uh, the IBIP, that's Illinois Ballot Integrity Project, say they were not only able to get full editing access to the online database, they also found they could modify the records for registered voters, setting them, for example, to inactive and otherwise changing addresses and other key information fields. The ability to gain access and hack the system was documented by the group on videotape at the time, which the Brad blog posted uh, exclusively back then in 2006. Election, election officials were said to be scrambling to, to plug the hole in what has, as I wrote at the time, has become an ever-increasingly unsecured system of voting in America in light of new regulations encouraging the use of electronic voting systems and statewide registration databases as set forth by Congress's Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, uh, after the 2000 election debacle. The vulnerability... Uh, as I reported at the time, uh, would allow malicious hackers to change voter registration status for thousands of Chicago voters. Bob Wilson, the Cook County chair of IBIP, said at the time, for example, you could change the status of all voters in a precinct to inactive after the registration deadline so that when one of those voters checked their online status, they might believe that they were ineligible and wouldn't attempt to vote. Or you could change their polling place information so they would show up at the wrong precinct on Election Day. The possibilities, he said, are nearly endless and could cause Election Day havoc. That was back in 2006, just days before that year's, uh, before that year's election. Now, it was not long after the Help America Vote Act had been put in place and the nation was turning to these computerized voting and voter registration systems. So maybe back then in 2006, maybe we could say, hey, they just put this thing in place. It's understandable. They're getting out. They're working out the kinks. Yes, it's terrible that 1.5 million voters have had their personal information exposed. Uh, they said at the time that uh, identity theft was just one possible outcome 
But election theft was another very real possibility. But hey, it was early. It was early in the, in, in the days of electronic voting and registration. So they had to work the kinks out. Back in 2006, more than a decade ago, I originally reported that. Then we've got this today. A leading U.S. supplier of voting machines, in fact, the nation's top supplier of voting machines, confirmed on Thursday that it exposed the personal information of more than 1.8 million Chicago residents. State authorities and the FBI were alerted this week to a major data leak exposing the names, addresses, dates of birth, partial Social Security numbers and party affiliations of more of over a million Chicago residents. According to Gizmodo, some driver's license and state ID numbers were also exposed. Over a decade later, the exact same Voter registration database in Chicago. CNN reports a security researcher from UpGuard discovered the breach. The data did not contain voting information like the results of how someone voted. Jim Allen, a a spokesman for the Chicago Board of Elections, said the leak did not contain or affect anyone's voting ballots, which are handled by a different vendor, he said. He said, we deeply regret this. It was a violation of our information security protocol by the vendor. He blames the vendor. In this case, ESNS is the voter registration vendor. The uh, I believe in, uh, in, in Chicago, they still use uh, Sequoia voting machines. That company has now been purchased by a Canadian company named Dominion. So... We've got lots of vendors involved here. So, of course, you know, nobody can be fired uh, for this failure. Unlike if it was run by the actually run by the county or by the city of Chicago itself. That also means that you, the taxpayer, pay the upcharge for the for the profits to those thugs at ESNS, the largest voting machine company in the nation. Uh, ESNS, who runs this and who reportedly are the ones who exposed all of this data on a on a website where no password was needed. And yes, ESNet, they are thugs. Uh, I've talked to a lot of uh, election officials over the years, the way they uh, strong arm them, the way they overcharge for maintenance contracts. Again, because we have corporatized, we have privatized our public elections in this country to companies like ESNS and uh, like Dominion. And by the way, uh, you know, a, a public official could have made this same uh, mistake if it was a mistake. That could have happened. But at least we could do a public study. We could find out who was responsible. We could hold that official accountable. But, hey, this is all a private company. They say, uh, oops, we screwed up. Sorry, we won't do it next time. UpGuard security researcher John Hendren found this uh, cache of data exposed on an Amazon Web Services uh, system on uh, on Friday night. He handed it off to an analyst to look at. That analyst, Chris Vickery, downloaded the information to examine the content and shared his findings with local and uh, Illinois state authorities on Saturday morning. Apparently, Amazon Buckets where data is stored by uh, by Chicago in this case by ESNS in this case they are private by default so that would mean apparently that someone at ESNS either misconfigured the security uh, setting or uh, or did so on purpose and exposed the data online 
The analyst Vickery said this data would be an identity thief's dream to find. He also said the leaked files contained some voting system administration credentials. So, hey, if anybody's got access to that, they can get into the to the whole voting system, it seems. Wait, what? Uh, yeah. Uh, everything was open. It was all open including, on this Amazon. Including administrative credentials. That's what it says. My goodness. That's what it says. It's, uh, Vickery said, it's really kind of an epidemic that people don't have any idea about. System administrators leaving things open and exposed to the public Internet is like a cancer on security. And it remains a cancer on American democracy, our uh, the greatest, uh, the world's greatest democracy, as we are told over and over again. So our nation's electoral system, as I have been pointing out, Clearly here for more than a decade, specifically in Chicago, but everywhere in the country remains a disaster. And we do not do anything about it, to be frank. We're making things worse. I hope we'll talk about what's going on here in Los Angeles uh, at some point in the near future where uh, we are going to a system that's going to make it even more difficult to oversee elections here in the nation's largest voting jurisdiction of Los Angeles. But um But hey, uh, speaking of train wrecks, uh, back to the train wreck currently in the White House. The 25th for 45? Maybe. That's next with my guest David Ferris on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And... Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yep, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, former Vice President Al Gore was asked in an interview published on Thursday what advice he would give to President Trump at this time. He answered with one word, resign, Gore responded. Well, Donald Trump is unlikely to take advice from Al Gore on uh, anything, the climate, much less resigning. Uh, But even uh, his close political allies, Trump's, are beginning now to finally distance themselves from this president following the tumultuous week in the wake of a white nationalist killing a counter protester in Charlottesville and the president of the United States steadfastly uh, equating neo-Nazis and white supremacists with those who oppose them. While many Republicans have come out to oppose Nazis and racism, At least with statements on Twitter, for whatever those are worth, few have called out Trump directly. And those who have, like Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and John McCain and Jeff Flake, are those who have done so before. 
But as now four, I think we're up to, yeah, four advisory councils, three business councils, and today a presidential arts council, first established by Ronald Reagan in 1982, have now been disbanded. And many businesses and executives are increasingly distancing themselves from Donald Trump and his White House. Some top Republicans who have been closely allied with this president are also beginning to turn on him as well, at least a little bit. Before the firing of Trump's chief political strategist was announced on Friday, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, a well-respected senator, at least among Republicans, had reportedly been on Trump's short list uh, for both vice president and secretary of state during the transition. Well, now Corker, who has been a quiet but steadfast supporter of Trump, uh, was asked about the chaos and the many disasters befalling this White House on Thursday. Uh, And he called for radical changes at the White House and essentially at least suggested, as I hear it, that he believes Trump may be unfit for office. I do think there need to be some radical changes. Um, The president has not yet um, has not yet been able to demonstrate the stability uh, nor some of the competence that he needs to demonstrate in order to be successful. He also recently has not demonstrated that he understands the character of this nation. Wow, that was uh, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee saying the president does not have the, quote, stability or competence uh, to be successful and does not understand the character of this nation. And that's from a friend of the president, South Carolina, uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who's also another Trump supporter and the only black Republican senator in the entire U.S. Senate, also broke ranks on Thursday saying he could not defend the, quote, indefensible in the wake of Trump's comments about white supremacist uh, rallies in Charlottesville and suggested that Trump had squandered his moral authority of office. And as CNN notes today, another sign of Trump's growing isolation came on Thursday when James Murdoch, the 21st century Fox CEO, which owns Fox News and the son of Rupert Murdoch, Um, who is one of Trump's close informal advisors, James Murdoch wrote a blistering email denouncing the president's reaction to the white supremacist rally and the violence that it sparked, writing, quote, what we watched this last week in Charlottesville and the reaction to it by the president of the United States concerns all of us as Americans and free people. I can't even believe I have to write this. Standing up to Nazis is essential. There are no good Nazis or Klansmen or terrorists. Democrats, Republicans and others must all agree on this and it compromises nothing for them to do so. So Trump is losing business leaders. He's losing close allies in Congress. And as Murdoch's letter suggests, um, along with other revelations, by the way, from Fox News that we've shared on this show over the past week, including Fox News analysts breaking down into tears on air. He suggests that uh, that suggests that he may even be losing Fox News, who did as much to create President Trump as anyone or anything. And at the same time, new polling reveals that 40 percent of Americans now believe Donald Trump deserves to be impeached. That just seven months into his presidency, that's a 10 point rise from just five uh, from uh, just February of this year, the last time that PRRI carried out its survey on this. 
just a bare majority at this point, 53% of Americans do not believe that Trump should be impeached and removed from office. That was a view held by 65% of the public in, back in February. Now just 53% thinks he should not be impeached. Now, much of the uh, steep increase in support for impeachment, uh, not all that surprisingly, comes from Democrats. But still, this poll, it must be noted, was taken before the horrific events in Charlottesville and Trump's widely panned response to them. Nonetheless, at this moment, in any event, and uh, things change by the hours uh, these days. So uh, beyond now three different Democrats filing articles of impeachment in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, there seems to be little move in the direction of impeachment. So if not resignation, if not impeachment, then, well, what else? We last discussed the Constitution's 25th Amendment solution for removing a president back in March, I believe it was. Of course, that was many years ago in Trump time. Since then, obviously, much has changed. None of it, I think, for the better. Writing at The Week this week, political scientist David Ferris argues, quote, with his Gallup approval hitting an astonishing low of 34 percent this week, and sure to plunge more after his disgusting neo-Nazi fiasco and with rising uh, with a rising percentage of Americans favoring the president's immediate impeachment. It is long past time to start gaming out scenarios where Trump is removed. We cannot take three and a half more years of this nonstop hell without experiencing a collective nervous breakdown. Ferris writes. No kidding. I, I don't think that I can. He goes on to say a president who encourages police officers to assault American citizens, who attacks judges and businesses using the imprimatur of his office, who rec recklessly conducts nuclear diplomacy from his Twitter account and who refuses to condemn the greatest enemies this country has ever known after they've committed a heinous murder, is someone who is mentally and ethically unfit to be president. Now, uh, some expected that some White House staffers and cabinet members might resign following Trump's unhinged remarks uh, equating neo-Nazis and white supremacists with those who opposed them uh, in Charlottesville a week ago. But maybe it's good that uh, those cabinet members have not resigned. Why? Because those folks may be needed within the cabinet to help exercise the 25th Amendment at some point to remove this president from office. Especially if Congress, as has so far been the case, refuses to take action to investigate removal from office with an impeachment investigation, which should, if we had any collective common sense left in this nation, begun, or at least in Congress, that should have begun long ago. Ferris's piece at The Week is headlined, Could the 25th Amendment Really Remove Trump from, from Office? Well, I don't know. Could it? Here to perhaps answer that question is David Ferris. He's a contributor at The Week. He's uh, associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago and the author of the upcoming It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Progressives Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. David Ferris, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Great to be back, Brad. <laughs> 
All right. Well, listen, uh, before we get into your piece on the the 25th Amendment, uh, since it appears Trump's uh, chief political strategist, Steve Bannon, is now finally out of the White House, I want to get your thoughts on that and uh, if it will ultimately help or hurt this beleaguered administration and the, the constant chaos that they are putting all of us in the in the nation and the world through at this point, David. Well, I mean, I'll say, you know, first of all, Getting rid of Steve Bannon is just, uh, it's a great victory for the resistance. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's a hugely important step in getting some of the most odious figures out of this White House and back into private life. I mean, Steve Bannon is just an awful human being. You know, his website is just a disgusting, like, racist, neo-Confederate cesspool. You're talking about Breitbart. And, uh, Breitbart News. Breitbart, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and so and he brought that aesthetic and he brought that epic and he brought those ideas into the White House, where you know at any time of the day or night he could have the president's ear, and we all know um, that the president is impressionable. Uh, advisors and sources say he often listens to the last person he talked to, mm-hmm. and so at the least, this guarantees that Steve Bannon um, will not be the last person that he talks to, at least in as much as any policy gets made. <laughs> through normal processes in this White House. Although his website, uh, if reports are accurate, uh, the Breitbart website uh, may still be the last thing that Donald Trump reads on his uh, on his iPhone before going out and setting policy. So it's unclear to me, I mean, ultimately, if this, I know, I think you're absolutely right, it is a victory for, for the resistance, for those who oppose the uh, Trump administration. I'm just trying to think, uh, you know, ultimately, is it any better for the for the country and and for the world? You know, I think it is. I mean, I think it's you know, in, in the larger scheme of things, it's 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 relatively minor, but I think it sets an important precedent about the kind of people that can and cannot have the president's ear, um, and that goes not just now, but for any future Republican administration. And as far as Breitbart is is concerned, I mean, they they've already started the war. I don't know if you saw this piece by Joel Pollack. Mm-hmm. Um, another rapscallion that went up today saying, okay, you know, Trump is basically Arnold Schwarzenegger now. Um, and so I, w- I would expect to see um, actually a rift open up between the White House and Breitbart, um, which is, you know, functionally the Pravda of the, of the Trump administration. Um, and that, I think, actually benefits us because the more divisions exist um, between the White House and between uh, people who help bring um, this guy to power, I think the, I think the better that is for us. Uh, and I would much, much rather have Steve Bannon on the outside, you know, firing shots at Trump and writing articles and, and directing his idiotic website rather than, you know, inside the halls of power. Um, and so it's not, you know, it doesn't end this fight. It doesn't mean that the policy is going to get any better. Um, but at least, you know, Steve Bannon's not going to be writing any more executive orders. You well, know, that- Steve Bannon's not going to be at the principal's meetings. Um, and I, I think that's important. There is that, and uh, the uh, it should be noted when you said that they're calling him Arnold Schwarzenegger, basically saying that he's, uh, well, Breitbart, I, I think, has said, and Pollock has said, oh, this is now a Democrat, their words, a Democrat uh, White House, because Bannon is gone, and uh, they think that uh, now uh, Trump is, uh, is a moderate, a Democrat, whatever. We'll see what happens. But as to the people who have uh, the president's ear, this could come in very important uh, in regard to the 25th Amendment. We've talked about it uh, before on this show, but as it has never been invoked, at least its uh, Section 4 provisions have never been invoked, Americans, I think, understand even less about the process of the 25th Amendment and how that would work 
uh, if it did work, uh, than they do about impeachment, which, by the way, for people who don't know, is an investigation of potential removal from office. It's not actual removal in and of itself. And for Democrats... Um, that they are not calling for impeachment. I think you got about three of them now who have filed articles of impeachment. But uh, as a caucus, it seems like they ought to be front and center on this. That's just my opinion. But in any event, I think more people uh, misunderstand or don't even know how the 25th Amendment is supposed to work uh, to remove a sitting president from office uh, than they do when it you know comes to impeachment. So. The, admittedly, the procedures are very, very confusing and murky uh, and untested, I guess, in the court. So let's uh, let's step through how exactly that would work, David Ferris. Sure. Well, I mean, I got to be honest, uh, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment is just a complete and total mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it, what it does um, is it allows the vice, pre- uh, the vice president, so it would be Vice President Pence, and then what it says are a majority... Uh, of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may law provide. Okay, first of all, that makes no sense, right? But just think of it this way. Okay, it depends uh, in the cabinet, right? So that's the mm-hmm. Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Defense, um, the, the sort of the cabinet-level executive appointment mm-hmm. that Trump has made. If they get together um, and if there's a majority of those officers plus Pence, um, they can transmit um, to the, the president pro tempore of the Senate, that's Orrin Hatch, and then the Speaker of the House of Representatives, whose name I will not speak out loud. Uh, they have to submit a written dec- declaration to them that the president cannot ch- discharge the powers and duties of his office. Okay, so be- um, before we get to the next step, let's just step through this. Yeah. So basically the vice president says, uh, vice president and uh, a, a majority of the president's own cabinet write a note and say, we believe the president is unfit for office. They send that to the uh, to the Senate, essentially, and at that point, the vice president becomes it, the president. He becomes at that point the acting president, uh, right? Um, which is another bit of confusion to me because um, a lot of the impetus for the Twenty Fifth Amendment was to remove the idea of an acting president mm-hmm. uh, from the lexicon because they didn't want the vice president to be the to be the acting president if the president died or resigned. That aside, yes, that is correct. So as soon as that letter is, is submitted, um, the vice president becomes the acting president. Um, and then uh, the president has a chance to respond, right? So they say he can't do it. Um, importantly, they don't specify what it means to be unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't say uh, the president has to be physically incapacitated, right? Which I think is probably the spirit of the amendment, but mm-hmm. that's not what it says. It could so, be used theoretically. For, it could be for anything. Yeah, for, it know. could be used for a coup, for example. If a vice president and the cabinet just decided they didn't like the president for any given reason, they could uh, declare the president, the uh, vice president, to be the acting vice president at will if they wanted to. But then there is a response that uh, comes back from the president, who in this case, I suppose, would tweet to the Senate that no, I'm fine. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, I, 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 and, and basically when he tells the Senate, no, I'm fine, he then becomes the actual president again, right? Well, that's, uh, there's, there's a lot of ambiguity um, right. in this section. In, in my humble opinion, it doesn't really make it clear whether the president becomes the president again at that point or not. Um, so let, let me just read you the full sentence sure. so, so you can see the ambiguity, right? So the, so the VP and the cabinet have submitted this declaration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, then it says, thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate, 
and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive department or of such other body as Congress may law by law provide transmit within four days to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives <laughs> their written declaration the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Okay. So in other words, yeah. they, so the president says, no, I'm fine, I'm the president, and, and he becomes president again, and then the vice president and the cabinet or some other group that has been uh, named by the Congress says, has essentially four days to say, no, no, we were right in the first place. This guy is not fit for office. Right. And so the, the ambiguity here is whether the president remains the president or whether the vice president remains the president. During those, those four, four days. days. Okay. Right. I think the spirit of the law is intended to say um, that, in fact, the vice president remains the acting president so long as they resubmit this declaration within four days. But I would say... Yeah. If I'm the president, um, I'm probably going to exploit the ambiguity um, in in that language in the section four uh, mm -hmm. to claim that I that I get to be the president again as soon as I say I'm okay. Um, and it sets up this really, really possibly destructive thing where, um, okay, so the you know so the VP in the cabinet says he's out. Mm -hmm. um, president says he's fine. What's to stop him at that point from firing the entire cabinet mm. prior to when they submit the second the second declaration, right? Oh. So, so this thing is like full of loopholes, you right. know. Um, and but then, the upshot of this is uh, is that the process is not is not over yet, yeah. right? So yeah, um, what happens then, at that point? Then it, then Congress comes into it to hold a vote, right? Right. So Congress then has to assemble within forty eight hours. Um, if they're not already in session, um, and then they have 21 days to contemplate this, uh, this disagreement between the president, the vice president, and the cabinet about who should be the president. And interestingly, um, the bar is actually higher than it is for impeachment. So impeachment only requires a simple majority in the House. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but this process requires two-thirds vote in, in both houses, so the House of Reps and then the Senate to actually remove the president. So this would um, potentially be a more difficult way to remove a president than, than impeachment would. In some ways, yeah. In some ways, yes, definitely. I mean, I think at the present time, I don't think any of these routes is, is feasible. Um, what I think the advantage of the 25th Amendment route is, um, is that I think one of the reasons Republicans won't impeach Trump is because they feel like they'll pay a huge political price from his base at the next election. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody who votes for impeachment is going to get primaried away in 2018. I think that's a working assumption, right? Um, but what the 25th Amendment would allow Republicans to do is to put the blame for that removal on somebody else, right? Um, so Paul Ryan can get up and say, you know, look, we didn't start this, we didn't start these proceedings, but now we're going to consider them duly. Um, it's the president's own vice, vice president, mm -hmm. his own closest advisors, who all say that he's unfit for office, and now we have to take seriously the idea that, in fact, he is unfit for office and that we should remove him. So in my mind, it gives, it gives congressional Republicans a little bit of a fig leaf to say, mm -hmm. you know, look, we didn't start the fire here, but, um, but ultimately we're going to abide by um, the decisions of, of the cabinet members and, and of the vice president. Well, it, it, it gives them the, that, uh, that fig leaf, but, uh, it then, but it requires the vice president, Mike Pence, for Christ's sake, uh, and a majority of, of the cabinet, of, of Trump's own cabinet, 
to come out and uh, and start this process. Uh, so it, it makes it easier for Congress, but it seems like it makes it even, I don't know, in, in hearing your telling of it, it sounds like it makes it even more wildly unlikely to actually get triggered. I don't think any of this is like terribly likely at the moment, um, but I do think it's I do think it's at least as plausible a path as impeachment as a way to remove the president because you also introduce an actor into this scenario who has very very strong incentives um, to go along with removal, and that's Vice President Pence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he goes along with this process, even if he if he ticks off the base, you know, Vice President Pence is now President Pence. You know, mm-hmm. even if he loses the 2020 primaries, you know, he gets a library. Uh, he gets <laughs> to be the president for two years or three years, whatever it is. Right. Um, and so, you know, you'd be surprised how strong the, the incentives are to become the president of the United States if you have that opportunity. And all of these whispers about how Pence is preparing for 2020, it's like, hey, uh, you know, you don't have to wait that long, man. Like, you can be president right now. Right. Uh, all you have to do is talk everybody else in the cabinet into going, uh, into going forward with this. And I think at that point, congressional Republicans might might make a calculation like, hey, you know, we might get killed in the midterms less uh, mm-hmm. with, with this guy as the president instead of this uh, instead of this like uh, perpetual Titanic we have in the, in the Oval Office right now. Well, it would certainly be, I think, uh, uh, in general, uh, a shorter process than impeachment would, because impeachment can go on for quite some time. You have to have the hearings in the House and then eventually a trial in the Senate and everything else. So you're right. I mean, if they felt he was really a liability, uh, the 25th Amendment, it seems, could be triggered uh, and, and, and completed a lot more quickly than impeachment. But uh, you know that uh, this backdoor, as you call it, this backdoor to removing an incapacitated or malevolent president from office, uh, that it never existed before 1967. I'm wondering uh, why it was even put in place uh, in 1967. And um, was the removal of a president for being unfit for office, you know, simply because he was disastrous at it, uh, as Trump seems to be, was that even contemplated uh, as part of this amendment when it was written uh, and adopted into the U.S. Constitution, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, no. I mean, I think the, I think the clear spirit of this amendment um, is to put into place procedures to remove the president if he's physically incapacitated or if he's severely mentally incapacitated, you know, like advanced stage Alzheimer's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the purpose of that amendment, the, the four sections, uh, most of them are about clarifying uh, the Constitution's ambiguity about what happens when the president dies or resigns. Um, so back in 1841, when John Tyler took over for William Henry Harrison six, six weeks into his term, there were people who said, you know, you're not the president, like you're the acting president, we have to have a new election. Right. Um, and Tyler said, you know, to hell with that. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm the president. This is how it's going to work. And that, that you know, we've, we've had a number of presidents who, who are killed or who die in office. Uh, you know, William McKinley, um, right, mm-hmm. um, and JFK, you know, it, it happened several times since Tyler. Um, and, and it went smoothly. But I think there was a, there was a lingering sense that, um, that the situation was ripe for, for some kind of crisis um, if the vice president's legitimacy was contested. Um, and so they wrote this um, to eliminate that ambiguity, and they also wrote it so that the president could, in Section 3, voluntarily transfer um, the powers of the office to the vice president if he's temporarily incapacitated. Um, so, you know, little-known horror fact is that Dick Cheney was president of the United States twice. Right. Um, 
in 2002 and 2007, you know, for less than two hours each, but, but he was there, um, and that's because uh, George W. Bush had a colonoscopy. Right. Um, they didn't find anything up there except his own head, but he had one, right? Oh, so, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that, that's, you know, and I think all those procedures, I think that needed to happen, right? I think it's like, you, you don't want to have ambiguity about who gets to be the president of the United States in the and, midst of a crisis or an assassination or something like that. And, but and this yet, fourth section is really something else. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's something that they wrote to clarify ambiguity could not possibly have created more. You know, yeah. it's, it's really unbelievable to me. Yeah, uh, you know, you're exactly right, because I've read it over and over again, and it's still unclear to me, uh, even if the Congress has, has to come up with a two-thirds vote to remove the president under this or a two-thirds mm-hmm. vote to keep him there. It's, it's terribly uh, ambiguous, it seems to me. Um, but, you know, we've got a stolen Republican uh, U.S. Supreme Court who will be happy to work this all out for us. Uh, I got a very quick uh, uh, minute here, David Ferris. I, I wanted to ask uh, Carl Bernstein of the infamous uh, Washington Post, Watergate, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, tweeted on, on Tuesday following Trump's press conference at uh, Trump Tower. He said, uh, important Republicans, conservatives, uh, intel, military higher-ups, high-ups, increasingly saying in private that real Donald Trump is unfit to be president because of lack of ethics, competence, temperament, and stability. Uh, Of course, they're saying that in private. There's a very few uh, Republicans coming out and saying so publicly. Um, But are you in any way encouraged by the responses that you have seen from Republicans uh, since Charlottesville? Well, I mean, I'll say two things. I mean, one, we've been here before. Um, you know, when the when the uh, Access Hollywood tape dropped, mm-hmm. you had Republicans all over the political spectrum, you know, distancing themselves. Jason Chaffetz said, I can't look my daughter in the eye if I vote for Trump. Um, and within, you know, two weeks of that, they had all, you know, gotten religion again and got back on board. Yep. So you'll forgive me if I don't necessarily see this as a turning point until I see elected Republicans or people in the cabinet taking concrete action to hold this president accountable. Um, and from the Congress, we need to see concrete actions um, that suggest that they are committed to dismantling white supremacy in this country um, and that they're willing to use their legislative power and their political capital to make that happen. Um, the second thing is, you know, if anybody from Trump's cabinet is listening to this, don't resign. And they are. They are. Don't, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course. Don't resign. Do not resign. Instead of resigning get together and remove this president from office, right? Do the entire country a favor. You will be remembered fondly by historians for centuries for doing this. Um, And you may get some hate mail from Breitbart and some death threats, but it is worth it to rescue the country from this calamity. Uh, don't hold your breath for that to happen, David <laughs> Ferris, but, no. uh, do, but do try to avoid the uh, collective nervous breakdown we're all going through. For more on this, I would point folks to theweek.com. David uh, Ferris's piece, Could the 25th Amendment Really Remove Trump from Office?, uh, which also includes some other really interesting history of the uh, of the 25th Amendment and uh, the history of vice presidents taking over or not from the president. Uh, David, always great to talk to you, my friend. I hope you'll uh, be willing to do so again in the near future. Anytime, Brad. I look forward to it. Check out David's work at uh, on the Twitters, also at David M. Ferris, and keep an eye out for his upcoming book, It's Time to Fight Dirty. Thanks, David. Thank you, Brad. Take care. Okay, well, I'm, uh, I, I sort of want to say, you know what? Well, hey, things couldn't get any worse. And then I look across <laughs> the uh, studio here at you, Desi Doyen, and realize, 
Oh, yeah. We've got a green news report coming up. Things can always get worse. Oh, yes, they can, especially when you're around. <laughs> Let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with that and a bit more on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, it's Desi Doyen's Siren Song. <laughs> I'm Brad Friedman. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, Des, I sort of uh, mentioned this offhandedly in the past segment, which is kind of amazing uh, that a third uh, article of impeachment, a third Democrat at least, has now filed articles of impeachment. Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee, a ranking member of the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution and Civil Justice. The House Judiciary Committee is where Im impeachment proceedings would need to start if they were to start. And now uh, Steve Cohen, following uh, Charlottesville, said, I believe the president should be impeached and removed from office instead of unequivocally condemning hateful actions by neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and Klansmen following a national tragedy. The president said, quote, there were fine people on both sides. He says Trump has failed the presidential test of moral leadership. No moral president would ever shy away from outright condemning hate, intolerance, and bigotry. Um, and went on to explain why he is uh, filing for impeachment. So uh, this is not the first time that articles of impeachment have been introduced in the House against this president. Last month, another Democrat, uh, Congressman Brad Sherman from out here in California, introduced his own articles along with Al Green of Texas, accusing Trump of obstruction of justice in the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Uh, it just struck me during the break that I sort of offhandedly mentioned, oh, more articles of impeachment have been filed against this president, you know, as if that happens every day. Well, that's true. It's, it is a remarkable place that we are in American history. But then again, Republicans hold all the keys here. Well, they do for now. But, you know, things are changing, as I said, by the hour. So who knows where we'll be by the uh, next thrilling broadcast. But before <laughs> we get there, we better get to it. Our latest Green News Report. I just signed a new executive order to dramatically reform the nation's badly broken infrastructure. Trump revokes Obama's executive order protecting the nation's infrastructure from floods. July 2017 was the hottest July on record and the hottest month ever. Total solar eclipse to have a big impact on solar energy generation. Plus, national monuments on the chopping block in unprecedented monument review. All of that chopping and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. When I make a statement, I like to be correct. I want the facts. Before I make a statement, I need the facts. Also, global warming is a hoax created by the Chinese. Fact. Look it up. This is your Green News Report. I'm 
Okay, Desi Doyen, uh, is it true that Obama had a bike share station installed near the White House and Donald Trump has now removed the bike share station? <laughs> yes, that is indeed true. Like many things that Obama has set up, apparently the Trump administration has decided to remove that bike share station that's been there for five years. Unbelievable. No explanation given. None needed. Obama liked it. Trump's got to get rid of it. What else do you have for us today, Desi Doyen? Well, a bit of a bigger issue. Before President Donald Trump's press conference on Tuesday at Trump Tower veered off the rails and into the violence in Charlottesville, it was supposed to be about Trump's new executive order to fast-track the permit process for new infrastructure projects. I just signed a new executive order to dramatically reform the nation's badly broken infrastructure permitting process. This overregulated permitting process is a massive, self-inflicted wound on our country. Except Trump's new executive order actually puts infrastructure projects in harm's way with a little-noticed provision that revokes an Obama-era requirement that construction projects receiving federal funding should be designed to withstand growing flood risks in areas prone to floods. Scientists have already confirmed that costly extreme flooding events are increasing in frequency in the U.S., so the Obama rule was intended to reduce long-term costs to taxpayers who foot the bill to repair damaged infrastructure and pay property owners flood insurance claims. Criticism of Trump's move was swift and bipartisan, condemning it as needlessly endangering people's lives and property. Of course, if we don't invest in flood protection now, we will pay more later in money and in lives. Yeah, that's just red tape. Think of all the jobs that are created after floods when we have to fix all the federal buildings that we didn't protect from floods. Well, see, there you go. See? Meanwhile, August 24th is the deadline for Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's unprecedented review of national monuments designated by previous presidents. That's when Zinke will submit recommendations for which monuments should be revoked or redrawn to allow access to extraction industries and developers, despite data that shows national monuments generate huge tourism profits for local businesses. Zinke has already pardoned a handful of monuments, but more than 20 remain on the hit list. The public comment period is over, but conservation groups are urging the public to pressure their elected officials during the summer recess to protect their public lands. Mm, Like we don't have enough to pressure them about. Meanwhile, July 2017 was the hottest July ever recorded globally, NASA announced this week. But worse, NASA also found that July 2017 was the hottest month ever recorded globally ever, beating the hottest month record set just last year year. Scientists say this newest, hottest month on record is remarkable because it occurred without an El Nino present to boost global temperatures and is yet another sign of the long-term warming trend. In Montana, a federal district judge has blocked the expansion of a coal mine, criticizing Department of Interior officials for, he says, inflating the short-term economic boost of the mine expansion, but downplaying the short- and long-term environmental impacts and climate change caused by the project. He ordered the Interior Department to re-evaluate the mine expansion. Finally, transportation officials across the U.S. want folks to be aware of the potential for a Carmageddon of sorts if they're on the road during the total solar eclipse on Monday, warning of the risk of epic traffic jams and accidents due to distracted drivers. But the eclipse also poses a big challenge for electric grid operators in U.S. states where solar energy is a big contributor to the energy mix. Although California is outside the path of totality, their grid operator projects the eclipse will still cut the output 
output of commercial solar power plants by an amount large enough to power a large city for about three hours. But they say they're ready. They're prepared to meet demand by ramping up power from hydroelectric dams and filling in the remainder with natural gas plants. Yeah, but isn't it just like a cloudy day for three hours? No, it's actually worse, and it also requires them to ramp up and ramp down faster. So it requires a little bit of savvy engineering. Mm, Consider me dubious. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, dubious or not, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Once upon a time there was light in my life now there's only love in the dark Nothing I can say A total eclipse of the heart Oh man We I had to use it I haven't heard that one in a long time Very nice. By the way, while I'm uh, uh, dubious, Desi Doyne, thank you very much. While I'm dubious about what, how hard this is going to be for the solar power, solar power plant. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I mean, I think it's just like a, you know, a storm for a few hours. Uh, What I'm not dubious about is the fact that uh, don't look up at the skies. Yes, it's extremely, extremely important. Look it up on the internet if you must, but do not look directly at the sun, even if it's for a few seconds, especially during the eclipse. It's misleading and it will damage your retina permanently. Even with sunglasses, there are special eclipse watching sunglasses, but if you don't have them by now, you probably won't have them. Uh, in time uh, in time for the eclipse. And there are a lot of scam glasses that are now being oh, really? sold around. So NASA is warning people, you know, be sure that you get it from a reputable person. Or, hey, you know, just it's probably too late. Don't try to get special glasses now. Go to NASA.gov. They have a special solar eclipse viewing tips. And they have ways that you can bring in kids and you can teach them what's going on. It's fa- fa- and family And it's pretty much fun. the same thing that happened last time. I recall a solar eclipse. I don't think it was totality, but back in... Uh, it's like junior high or something. Yeah, I, I was know. in junior high when this I remember going outside during school to look at it through the little pinhole in the index cards. Exactly. Use that method. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's really important the a uh, couple of seconds of solar eclipse viewing is not worth long-term lifetime damage to your eyesight and yes it does happen. Or just wait for the next one. <laughs> oh wait, that's 99 years oh. away. <laughs> oh well, okay. Uh, all right, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to my guest today David Ferris of theweek.com and Roosevelt University and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as ever, download it for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where we hope you'll uh, share us worldwide, I am simply the Brad Blog. Also, you can become an active supporter of the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate Put your money where your ears are every day of the week, says me. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I can do a total eclipse of the heart.